0: The very first thing I want to say this morning is that the title of this sermon is not 2020 Vision. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) But Happy New Year here in 2020. It's wild. We are as far away from 2050 as we are from 1990. If I had to know it, you had to know it too. (laughs) It's a little overwhelming. We are at a bit of an intersection today. Today is the 12th day of Christmas, 12 drummers drumming. I'm sure you're all aware of the drummers drumming. So this is why so many of our Christmas decorations are still here. It's because today is the last day of Christmastide. So hopefully... You've been given and are giving some wonderful gifts over these last 12 days as Christmas tide comes to an end. Today is also the day before Epiphany. Tomorrow is the, the celebration of Epiphany, and this is a day in which we remember the story of the Magi. We celebrate the Magi coming to the Christ child. And it's this story about these foreign kings that are brought to an awareness of this Christ child by some strange manifestations, these stars in the sky that lead them to Jesus. And this is worth celebrating because this is the moment that God incarnate is made known to people outside of the tribe of Abraham. This becomes good news for people like you and I. This is a statement that this is not just a Jewish child or even a Christian child, but somehow this is a child that belongs to the whole world. And that's good news for us. Um, With Epiphany coming tomorrow, uh, one thing that we've done the last couple of years, this will be our third year doing this, uh, we're going to be offering Epiphany home blessings. Uh, Several of you have participated in these over the past couple of years. And so we're going to be having some signups for those immediately after service. Those those are going to start not tomorrow, but next Monday. And uh, if you've ever been curious about the home blessings and you've, never been brave enough to actually invite us into your homes. I told somebody this week, priests are like vampires. We cannot come into your home unless we are invited. (laughs) And so if you don't want to clean, if you don't want to put all the laundry away, whatever the case may be, we will stand at your doorstep and bless your home from outside. Totally fine. Absolutely appropriate. Um, But really, it's not as... uh, Scary as it sounds. It's a short liturgy. We come in, we pray with you, and we are out the door. Usually it usually takes about 10 minutes. Um, but this is just a really sweet moment for us to mark out our homes here at the beginning of a new year as places of hospitality, places of respite and blessing. And our prayer is that as you are sanctuary parishioners, that your homes, the places where you live, become these kinds of spaces. And that the people that you invite in, the meals that you host, the parties that you have at your house, the kids that come to your house, um, all of these things that somehow your homes become places marked out by blessing. And so if you've never participated in that, please jump in. We would love to come and bless your homes So today is also the first Sunday of the new year, first Sunday of 2020. For most of us, this is the week where we climb out of the haze and the dark abyss that has been this week between Christmas and New Year's. Nobody knows what day it is, what time it is. We don't know what appropriate food portions look like anymore. (laughs) And so we're having to figure out how to be adults now here in 2020. It's also kind of a hard time, because here at the beginning of a new year, we're leaving this sort of magical, mysterious season of the holidays and moving back into the utility and the humdrum of everyday living. Every year on the holidays, I tend to bounce around between a couple of stories that I've loved for a long time, like... The Hobbit, and The Chronicles of Narnia. So right around the holidays, I always jump back into a couple of those. And there's just something about them that, that I love. And in, in one of these stories, called The Magician's Nephew, the main characters, whose names are Diggory, Polly, Uncle Andrew, and the Witch, they accidentally stumble into this new world. And this world, as they stumble into it, is in the middle of being sung into existence by, of course, Aslan, the lion. And the image that we're given is that this new world, Narnia, is full of life. Forests are growing. Divine waters are flowing. Creatures are coming into existence, coming into being. And the first thing that the witch tries to do is to kill... Aslan to kill the lion by throwing a lamppost at him. And in the story, she throws the lamppost, she misses Aslan, and the post sticks into the ground and sticks out like a tree. And then, all of a sudden, from the ground, up sprouts this brand new lamppost. This is the lamppost you're probably familiar with if you've seen any of the Chronicles of Narnia movies. So the uncle, seeing nothing of the magic and the mystery of a place like this, the wonder of a place like Narnia, he says in response, what was America to this? The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them and Up they come as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything that you please. I shall be a millionaire. This is his response to the magic and the mystery of Narnia. And I think this is something of what we do transitioning from Christmas into something like the first days and weeks of a new year. The magic of it all tends to fade away for us. The busyness, the plan making, the goal setting comes and takes its place. Or in the words of the great Saint, Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) People snap out of that Christmas spirit like a drunken stupor. So I want to talk a little bit about this business of moving into a new year because I think we run the risk of losing some sense of the magic and mystery of the human experience when we get overwhelmed by the to-dos, and the plan-making, and the goal-setting. Full disclosure, um, I really had two sermons for today, and I couldn't really pick which one felt most appropriate, and so you're getting both of them. Um, (laughs) In short time, I hope. Uh, One of these sermons being about resolutions, and being about how we view ourselves, and another on faith, but we'll get to that here in just a moment. If you're anything like me, there's a little bit of anxiety here at the beginning of a new year. Typically, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make resolutions, to set goals, to make plans, to map out projects, things to do here in 2020. But I'm not sure that much of that comes from a healthy place. I do think it's important for us to plan and to put some effort into ourselves, and be kind, the kind of people that we want to be, try to become the kind of people we want to be. But I'm not convinced that's the whole story, that that's our whole motivation for why we do things like set resolutions. Charles Taylor, the philosopher, argues that one of the things we suffer from in the modern age, both believers and unbelievers alike, is an acute sense of disenchantment. In the ancient world, the perception was that creation, the universe is shot through with glory. This idea that everything is held together at every level by the invisible divine and supernatural creator. Taylor argues that today we tend to see the universe more like, more like a machine, like a dead, vacant, empty utility a lonely and bleak place to live, he says. But the image that scripture gives us is that God and all of God's creative energy is everywhere. That God is always at work. God is fashioning moments and experiences beyond our own efforts, beyond what we do or what we don't do. We see this in Colossians 1, 17, that tells us he himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. This means that God is not a being at all. God is not an object. As Rowan Williams would say, God is not just another object in the universe like a sock under your bed you haven't discovered yet. God is not somewhere God is God's own space. God is the ground of our existence and our consciousness. God is more intimately involved in our lives than we are involved in our own lives. This means that God doesn't sometimes act in our lives and sometimes not act in our lives. God's very being is act. This kind of thinking is a far cry from the impulse of most of our New Year's resolutions. In all of our planning and our goal setting, one of the temptations we face is to believe that any good that is going to come out of the next year will be because I did enough to make it happen. What this inevitably leads to is this belief that the moments we experience are void of any kind of meaning or mystery, or at least they lack meaning outside of whatever meaning we can make of it. To put it another way, we start to believe that if any of our moments are going to matter, if they're going to be meaningful, we must make it so. But as Christians, we have to reject any interpretation of our days that doesn't include God's activity and work in our days. Again, God doesn't sometimes act and sometimes not act. God's very nature, his very being is act. So when we start thinking that everything depends on me and what I accomplish or how much weight I lose or money I make or Bible reading plans I finish, we start to be ruled by the task itself, not by grace. Our desire to lean into a better version of ourselves is really only appropriate when we see rightly that who we've been all along is loved by God. There is nothing that we can do. There are no resolutions that we could perfectly keep that make us more worthy of love. This is why I think part of the trick of something like New Year's resolutions stems from how we view ourselves and how we view our own worth. Again, there is something right about us wanting to better ourselves, to make improvements, to become the best version of what we think our, ourselves can be but there's a lot to be said about the version of you that's just you. The you that was you on December 31st at 11.59 p.m. survived everything that last year threw at you. It brought you through to 2020. You made it. So we shouldn't be so quick to get rid of a version of ourselves simply because the clock strikes 12. And when we start to think that our current version of ourselves isn't good enough, we start chasing all kinds of things, even well-meaning things, to try and earn something that we're already given. That's love and grace. Henry Nouwen, who had so much to say about the importance of how we view ourselves, he says this, Our clinging to the opinions of others reveals how superficial we are. We have to be kept alive by adulation and praise, but those who are deeply rooted in the love of God can enjoy human praise without being attached to it. When we know ourselves to be firmly, deeply rooted in the love of God, we can live with either an enormous amount of success or an enormous amount of failure without losing sight of who we are without losing our identity, because our identity is that we are the beloved. I also love Nowen's list of what he refers to as the real questions. And I think this is a good starting place for any of our resolutions in the new year. He asks, did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger resentment. Did I forgive? Did I love? I think this is the kind of resolution that shares in the mystery of God's activity in the world rather than self-serving ideals. The kind of resolution that refuses to see the world as a cold utility and more shot through with glory full of people that are created in the image of God who are deserving of love, even if they don't shed that extra 20 pounds. So, resolutions. I want to shift gears for a moment and talk about faith for us in 2020, faith for the community of sanctuary. In John's gospel, it offers us this really beautiful imagery referring back to this idea that God specifically God revealed in Jesus Christ, holds together all things at every level. And in the middle of these opening lines of John, it states, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love the way that Eugene Peterson's message translation says this. It says, we all live off of his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift gift after gift. I want to challenge us today by saying that any of our goals or any of our plans or resolutions pertaining to our faith in particular, they need to start with an understanding that faith itself is a gift. Faith is something that God gives. It isn't something that we can muster. It isn't something we can work up. It isn't something we can achieve for ourselves. It's either there or not there. And our belief as Christians is that faith is made possible for everyone because God has provided faith as a gift to all people. Romans 12:3 says that God gives to everyone the measure of faith. So faith is not our creation. We can't generate it. It's a gift that we've been given. Faith is God's work in us. But faith is different than Belief, our beliefs are always in service to the faith we've been given, not the other way around. If we understand faith as God's work gifted in us, belief is our response, our making sense of that faith. Faith always comes first. And the reality is that most of our belief happens under the surface. We don't always talk about our beliefs openly out in public. Oftentimes, we don't even know exactly what it is that we believe until some catastrophic moment causes our beliefs to surface. The question is, the question becomes for you and me, are our beliefs shaken or is our faith shaken? In his book, Tokens of Trust, Rowan Williams point out, points out that the Bible, strangely enough, Gives no arguments for the existence of God. There's no argument to be made in Scripture. He simply says this The Bible has no arguments for the existence of God. There are moments of conflict with God, anger with God, doubt about God's purposes, anguish and lostness when people have no real sense of God's presence. But don't imagine that the Bible is full of comfortable and reassuring things about the life of belief and trust. It isn't. It is often about the appalling cost of letting God come near to you and of trying to trust him when all the evidence seems to have gone. Part of true faith is the ability to question our beliefs while holding on to God. Another measure of faith is how open you can be to what God is doing and who God is apart from your own understanding. It's interesting that Abraham is projected as the father of faith, and even he had no real beliefs or teachings that we have a record of. He just goes around building altars, listening to God, responding with some action in the world. So at the heart of our tradition The Christian tradition is not necessarily a set of beliefs, but faith itself, God coming near to us, attaching and clinging to God, the God who has not left us to fend for ourselves, but the God who became one of us. As our gospel text mentioned today, that the word became flesh and blood. As Eugene Peterson would put it, became flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood. So should we believe things? Absolutely. Is doctrine important? Does doctrine matter? Certainly does. But we shouldn't confuse what we believe with faith itself. Faith is a kind of attachment to God that says, even when I don't know what to think or trust anymore, I'm still here. I'm still in this thing. I'm still willing to wrestle through and find out who is this God that has come near to us. This is the kind of faith that I think we should hope grows in us here at the beginning of a new year. We see this kind of faith in the person of Job. As Job goes through the experience of loss, Satan still says to God, of course Job trusts you. Job had all kinds of belief in God, trusting God. But by the end of the story, Job no longer believes or trusts that God is good or for him or reliable. And yet, Job is still found face-to-face with God, arguing his case. Some would assume that because they end up questioning beliefs or they're wrestling with beliefs, that they're walking away from the faith what they're probably questioning and walking away from is some tiny little circle of belief that no longer serves their faith well. For someone like Job, his life up until this moment would have led him to believe that God only provides, that God only protects, that God only gives good things, and those things would be true. But by the end of the book, Job's beliefs about what provision and protection and good gifts look like have completely changed. As Christians, we don't just want to think the same thoughts as everybody else. We don't just want other people to think the exact same thoughts that we're thinking, but to know the God that we know. We want to be people of generous orthodoxy. Rowan Williams goes on to say that faith has a lot to do with the simple fact that there are trustworthy lives to be seen, that we can see in some believing people a world that we would like to live in. I think this is the kind of life that we are called to live, the kind of faith I hope to embrace in 2020, a life that is trustworthy. Trustworthy. But that means oftentimes the lives that make God credible to us, they are lives that struggle. And they are lives that have some angst with the reality of God. Not having angst with beliefs about God, but with God himself. Sure, we can love and we can appreciate hearing people who know what they're talking about in terms of God and faith, of spirituality, of Christianity but the kinds of people that we want praying for us, the kinds of people that we want sitting with us when we're on our deathbed, these are the people who we know have wrestled with and struggled with God, and they're still found face-to-face with God. It's the people who have vision, who see more than other people see, that often walk with a limp because they've wrestled with God. I think embodying this kind of faith, it means leaning into a broader, bigger, more expansive kind of space for us. Yes, Christianity certainly has boundaries and those boundaries are constrictive, but chances are you have been raised and I have been raised in traditions that don't realize just how much life and space there is within those boundaries. And that's what we mean when we say a generous orthodoxy. It's trusting that God is at work in the spaces I'm familiar with and never being so sure of myself that I would ever presume to know where God is not at work. One final story and I'm done. This idea of taking responsibility for God, of living lives that point people to the reality of God, It originates from a young woman named Eddie Hillesom. Eddie was a young Jewish woman in her 20s when the Germans occupied Holland. She wasn't a pious or conventional person at all. She wasn't someone with explicit religious commitment. But her published diaries and letters from 1941 to 1943, they show how during this terrible period in the history of her country and her people, how she became more and more conscious of God's hand on her life at a time when most would have been likely to feel more deeply skeptical and questioning about God. She was imprisoned in the transit camp at Westerbork and before being shipped off to Auschwitz, where she would later die in the gas chambers in November 1943. And at the age of 29, she wrote, there must be someone to live through it all and bear witness to the fact that God lived, even in these times. And why should I not be that witness? In a letter written to a friend from Westerbork, she described her life as having become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, O God. And she could write of sensing her vocation in the camp to being not simply to proclaim you God to commend you to the heart of others but one must also clear the path toward you in them it's plain that she saw her belief as a matter of deciding to occupy a certain place in the world in the world a place where others could somehow connect with God through her And this is not in any self-congratulatory spirit or with any sense of being exceptionally holy or virtuous, but simply because she had agreed to take responsibility for God's believability. Sanctuary, I don't know what 2020 has for us as a church, as a city of Tulsa, as a nation, I'd be lying if I said the first few days of this new year haven't been a bit terrifying already. But I'm convinced that we have an opportunity to be people who live lives that make God's believability possible for others, to live as people who belong to a world that others would like to live in. So my prayer is that may we be people who know our worth, even if all of the resolutions fall apart. May we choose to be people of generous orthodoxy, convinced that God is acting and bringing about our good. And may we be people who take responsibility for God's believability. Amen.